0: Some say he was an outlaw Who roamed across the land With a batman of unschooled ruffians And a few f- old fishermen No one knew where he came from Or exactly what he'd done They said it must have been something bad That kept him on the run Some say he was a poet Would stand upon a hill And his voice could calm an angry crowd make the waves stand still, he spoke in many parables that few could understand, yet the people sat for hours just to listen to this man. Some say he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery, who could walk on water and cause the blind to see. He conjured wine at weddings and did tricks with fish and bread. AND HE SPOKE OF BEING BORN AGAIN AND RAISED PEOPLE FROM THE DEAD. SOME SAY A POLITICIAN WHO SPOKE OF BEING FREE WHO WAS FOLLOWED BY THE MASSES all THE SHORES OF GALILEE, OH, HE SPOKE OUT AGAINST CORRUPTION, AND HE BOWED TO NO DECREE, AND THEY FEARED HIS STRENGTH AND POWER, SO THEY NAILED HIM, THEY NAILED HIM TO A TREE. Some say he was the son of God, a man above all men, who came to be a servant and set us free from sin. Oh, and that's who I believe he is, because he's who I believe, and I think we should get ready. For it's time for us to leave, for us to leave, for us to leave.
1: end. That's kind of what they used to put up at old westerns, right? The end of every old western, just to let you know, picture show's over, as my papa used to call it, to the picture show. It's over, it's finished. Looney Tunes, of course, had their own way of saying it, right? That's all, folks. That's all. Everything will reach eventually The end. Toddlerhood graciously (laughs) reaches the end. And they go to kindergarten. And they start this long 13-year journey. And do you remember what it was like when you were on that journey? Like it just felt like those were the 13 longest years of your life. And that eventually comes to the end. Right? And you eventually graduate. It's the end. And then you have this strange, like, period between adolescence and young adulthood, when you're something, something in your early 20s, until you get a real job with real benefits, real vacation, health care, the whole deal. And that part of your life, then, that adoles- post-adolescent stage, it's it's the end, and you start this career. And you have a career, and it lasts 35, 40, maybe even 50 years. Until one day, some of you have, uh, have experienced this joy, the end of your career finally comes, and you go to the last day in the office, right? And then the, some of you are like, come on, hallelujah, come on. Anybody <laughs> count the days down to retirement right now? Some, some of you out there, yeah. And then you have a retirement party. It's the end. It's the end of your working life, the end of your career, and you, you go into another stage, the golden years of your life. And then you have a funeral, and it's the end. Everything will reach the end. And uh, at the, as the, the gospel of Matthew draws to a close, we're reminded of those words from Tracy Lawrence, time marches on. Everything comes to an end. And Jesus begins to talk about at the end of Matthew's gospel about how his time will eventually come to to an end. His end is drawing near. Jesus had spent most of his ministry in Capernaum, a a little harbor town off the Sea of Galilee. He was essentially a country rabbi. But as his influence grew, The crowds grew, and eventually opposition from Jerusalem, 60 miles to the south, grew. And Jesus knew that his future, his destiny, and even eventually his end lied in Jerusalem. It lay in Jerusalem. So he begins pointing toward the holy city pointing toward this journey, this destiny that he has that that eventually lands him in Jerusalem. And Christians all across the world today celebrate that final entry into Jerusalem. When Jesus leaves life as the country rabbi, and of course there have been times he's been in Jerusalem, but finally... Makes his entrance into the holy city and and churches, you'll have friends and family that go to other churches all across the country and all across the world, and they celebrate a lot like we did. This celebration with the palm branches and of Palm Sunday. But wow, wow, things change in less than a week. The tone in Jerusalem changes distinctly, dramatically. From the crowd at Palm Sunday to the cross on Good Friday. From coronation to condemnation. From Hosanna to hurling insults. From beloved to betrayed. The message is clear. This is all coming to the end. And as that old song that I shared with you Perhaps, perhaps, we should get ready before it's time for us to leave, before it's time for our end. Hey, uh, my name's Carter McKenna. I'm lead pastor here at Mountaintop, and it's so good to be with you. What a gorgeous day in Birmingham and wherever you're watching from. Thank you so much for welcoming us into your lives. I hope it's a fantastic day where you are, and uh, it's great to see so many here uh, in the room. We have been in this series uh, talking about the Gospel of Matthew. And that's what it's all about, his eyewitness account to the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, let me give you a snapshot of, of kind of the end of the book, because we're drawing close to the end. This is our last Sunday in this series. Chapter 26 of Matthew, there are 28 chapters, chapter 26 tells about the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Uh, Chapter 27 deals with his crucifixion and death, and we'll sort of wrap up the series on Friday night. We we hope you'll be here for Good Friday at 7 o'clock, and we'll look at Matthew's account of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And it's so unique. It's so good. I I really hope you'll be here to be a part of it. But I want to back up a few chapters before that to kind of get you, Get us to the end. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus begins with some scathing indictments on religious hypocrites. And we're, we're going to kind of see that theme. It's a scathing indictment on religious hypocrites. Basically, those who say that they love God, who follow lots of rules, but Jesus says you don't follow God's heart. You're rule followers, but you're not, you're not God followers. And then he has an announcement in chapter 24 that is a bit jarring. Jesus basically says all of this one day will eventually reach the end. It will all be over. Everything. The theological term for this, all right, the theological term for this is a big theological word, but you're so smart, I know you can handle it. The theological word for this is eschatology, okay? That may be totally a new word for you. Confession, when I went to seminary, it was a new word for me, okay? Like, I did not grow the, I did not learn this word growing up in church. So, eschatology is is basically the study of or the, uh, the, the thinking on end times, on final judgment, final destination. And Matthew, he writes of Jesus speaking in just these very eschatological words and themes. Jesus, he's all about love. He's all about grace. But Jesus makes it clear that there is an end. Jesus has this apocalyptic vision of what the future will be like. About at the end of time. There is an end. There will come a time of judgment. There will be a finality to life. Time as we know it and this reality will be done. And there will be a new reality in eternity. There will be, there will be an occasion, Jesus says, when time is eventually, existence is cut in half. And we will have a whole new reality where Jesus separates the good from the bad. And a few weeks ago, we looked at a parable called the Parable of the Nets. And if you've been a part of this series, if you haven't, great one to go back. And Jesus is already in the middle of his teaching in Matthew, is hinting at this. But in chapter 24 and 25, he makes it explicitly clear. In Matthew 25, he tells three parables. And we're going to look at one of those today that is uniquely in the book of Matthew. Three parables that are about the nature of the final days and, and the final judgment the end times and what it will be like now in case you were wondering if i know when it is or i have a prediction people ask me this all the time people ask preachers all the time like hey do, do you think we're in the final days pastor i read a blog oh oh i, I would contest how about we read the bible together and here's what Jesus said about that in Matthew, 24, in Matthew 24. Okay, this is what Jesus said about this. But, so he, keep in mind, chapter 24 is all about, Jesus says, he's making this announcement of what the end times are going to be like. And so people are already start questioning, like, hey, when is it going to be? Jesus says, now about the day or hour, let's all say it together, no one knows words of Jesus. Not even. This is, this is something. Not even the angels in heaven. So there's not like a countdown clock in heaven <laughs> that the angels are like, here we go. <laughs> Nor the sun. So if you had gone to Jesus when he was in the flesh here and asked him, he said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But only the father. So you will probably never, ever hear me teach a message about saying that we're in the final days or I think we're in the final days. If someone says that they believe they're in the final days or sometimes like used to, like the National Enquirer used to have this like, you know, the front page and somebody's predicted it's going to be in 2000. So it was going to be, wasn't it going to be in 2012 or something like that? We just made a movie about it, but it didn't really happen. Uh, so if anybody ever says that they know the date, you can know like, well, that's certainly not the date then <laughs> because no one knows. No one knows. So I just believe Jesus. And, and when, that's not the focus of Jesus anyway. The process, the journey is what matters and what counts in the end. So this is a message to the world, okay, This is a message to the world about the church that Jesus will establish and deploy. This is a message to the world about the church. Now, occasionally when I teach, you'll hear me use the term Big C Church. And what I mean when I say that is I'm talking about all the Christians on planet Earth together. Like we make up the church the people of God, the body of Christ. And this message is a message to the world about the church, and we're going to talk about this more later, the church that Jesus is establishing. This this group, we're a part of it, and all the other churches who who worship Jesus are, are part of it. And now in Birmingham and all over the world, we're all a part of it. We're all a part of the church, the big C church. Not the little C church, that's the church that's on the corner of your neighborhood. We're a little city church. We're just one church. But there's the church. So this is a message to the world about the church. But I also believe, I also believe that this is a message to the church about the church. I also believe that this is a message to the church, to us, about the church. So uh, this is a heavy passage Okay, so we're gonna have to really dig in and unpack it to get unpackage it together. I've already used a really big seminary word. This is gonna be a little bit like like you know first semester New Testament seminary class, okay? So but we're gonna dig into it together. It starts in Matthew 25. If you got your Bibles and that's where and you want to hold your Bibles open or your app, that's what we're gonna be looking on. Matthew 25. If you're here in person and maybe you're you're new and you don't have a hard copy Bible, We'd love to give you one, so when you leave, there's some bookshelves, and uh, let that be our free gift to you. Matthew 25, 31, Jesus starts this parable. When, and you'll see the theme right off the bat, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, and remember, they won't know, so he'll just be like, all right, guys, everybody's like, whoa, alarm hit, we got to go, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. He's been talking about Jerusalem. He's been talking about how he will have to go there. There are three times in Matthew that Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. But this is a pretty profound statement. He's like, Yeah, we got to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. Uh, I'm going to resurrect. But this is a pretty profound statement in, in light of this, this passage right here because Jesus says, My end won't be the end. My end won't be. The end. I'm coming back after that. And that, when that happens, that will be the end. And at the end, I'll be on the throne. And this is really important. We will stand before a throne at the end. There is a final throne. And I'm not on it and you're not on it. This is why we do what we do as a church. I mean, this is, this is what we do and why we do what we do as a church. Yes, there are so many ways that we as a church serve people and make our community better. Yesterday morning, we had college students packaging up food to go to different Uh, community partners that we have that help feed the homeless and the the, the, the food insecure in our community. There's so many good things we do. And yes, following Jesus will make your life better. It will make your marriage better. You will be better at marriage if you will forgive each other as Christ forgave you. You will be better at parenting if you will love your children as Christ loved you. You will be better at relationships if you will have Jesus a part of it. Yes, you will have more joy and more peace. Yes, following Jesus will make your life better. Yes, the church helps people because of that. But my mentor used to say this, that if all you want to do is help people, there's so many other things you can do besides ministry. Because we are not in the business of helping people. We are in the business of eternity. There is a throne, and I will stand before it, and your neighbors will stand before it, and you will stand before it, and all eight billion on the planet will stand before it. And that's why we do what we do. And there are a lot of organizations that help people, but there's only one that does eternity. There's a throne, Jesus says. And we're all going to stand before it. And then he says, all the nations, all the nations. To his very Jewish world who is listening to this, when you would see the term, when they would hear the term all the nations, they would understand that would just mean all the Gentiles. So anyone who was not Jewish, the whole world, Jesus is saying here, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus says the end, this this final judgment, this final coming before the throne, it it will be for everyone. No one is going to escape, no one is going to dodge it, no one's going to avoid it. Essentially, everyone is accountable. Everyone's accountable. Like we will all have to deal with this, no matter your job, your education, no matter if your grandma taught Sunday school, no matter if you grew up going to church every Sunday or this first time you've been in church in ages or ever. Everyone will gather before him. It's a level playing field. And at the end, as we're all held accountable, there'll be one action. There will be a separating. Jesus said everyone is accountable and everyone is separated. At the end of the day, Jesus says, I told you this is a hard passage. At the end of the day, there will be two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. He describes them in the parable as sheep and goats. There will just be two kinds of people. Now, that makes us think, well, what's the qualifier, Right? I mean, who wants to be a goat versus who wants to be a sheep? You want to be a sheep? In our world, it's good to be the goat, right? I don't want to be a goat in this story. (laughs) I don't want to be a goat. I want to be a sheep. So what is it? Is it the right political party or you watch the right news channel? Is it belonging to the right denomination or having the right kind of church? Is it Reformed or Arminian? Is it evangelical or mainline? Is it contemporary or liturgical worship? What is it? Is it northern or southern or urban or suburban or rural? How do do I get in the right group? Here's Here's the accountability. Accountability is just like such a buzzword in our culture right now, right? Like, we want people to be held accountable. We want leaders to be held accountable. We want politicians to be held accountable. We want school officials to be held accountable. We just don't want to be held accountable. (laughs) And Jesus says accountability is for everyone. And what separates you, what separates the two, Jesus says, it might surprise you. This is what he says. The king will say to those on his right. So this is the sheep. And there's some contrasting words here that we're going to see because he, he kind of tells both sides of the story. So don't you remember these words have got highlighted, I just kind of want you to remember them. If you're taking notes, write them down because you're going to see the exact opposite words when he contrasts the other side of the story. Come, you who are blessed by my father. So we see three words there. Come. Blessed, so you're invited, you're blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance in, in the what? The kingdom. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So we see, come, blessed, Father, kingdom. Those are kind of some key words that we see. And they're thinking, well, how do we get so lucky? I mean, the sheep are thinking, great, how did we get so lucky? And Jesus says, well, this is how it happened. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Basically what Jesus is saying is that you received me you welcomed me you accepted me that's that's what this is about reception this is about acceptance you received me you welcomed me and they're like oh great what we did and Jesus explains then the righteous will answer him lord um when (laughs) when did we see you and hungry and feed you not that we wouldn't we just don't remember it or thirsty and give you something to drink when did that happen when did we see you a stranger and invite you in not that we wouldn't we just don't remember it And, and or needing clothes and clothes you when did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you When? When did all this happen basically when Jesus, we don't remember doing this. I, it, it, it doesn't ring a bell. Keep in mind, this story is about when? The end, right? This is about the end. The sheep have never met Jesus. This is about the sheep for over thousands of years. They don't even live in Israel These sheep are from Memphis and Montana and Paraguay and Paris and Belarus and Birmingham. They're like, Jesus, like I was born 2,000 years after you died. We don't even, when did we ever do this? Their response is basically, thanks, but since we're in heaven and all, this is the final judgment. um, We should be honest, we didn't do that, Jesus. (laughs) That's basically their response. We didn't. We didn't. Do, when did we ever do? We didn't do that. And Jesus says to them, "Here's when." The king will reply, "Truly, I tell you. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me." It's an important term here, right here. These brothers and sisters of mine. And if you don't get this, you won't understand this whole parable. This word, um, it, you know, the King James, the King James translates it brethren. And it, it literally means brother. I mean, whenever, G- Matthew uses this, ter- this term a ton. It, this, it's in countless times in Matthews because anytime there are brothers This is the word used to describe Andrew and Simon Peter. This is the word to describe when Jesus said he saw two brothers fishing. It's the same word, John and James. But whenever Jesus puts the possessive, his possession, personal possessive on it, and says, my brethren, these brothers and sisters of mine, it means one thing. When he sees the women at the tomb after the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and he says, go and tell my brethren, my brothers, and sisters, go and tell them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his disciples. Whenever Jesus says, my brethren, he is talking about not just the whole world or the whole population of the world. He is talking about his people. He is talking about his disciples. It has a very specific definition, and it is ultimately his followers, his church. Because... Tens and hundreds and thousands of years later, you and I can't serve Peter and Andrew and John or Matthew, right? Because they're dead. But we can serve his church, his followers. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you receive me, if you receive me if you welcome my church, my people, then you get me. And the message that was entrusted to them, I am building a people. In Matthew 16, there's a story that's found in two of the other gospels, in Mark and Luke. It's this story where it's, kind of, it's, called, a, it's called Peter's kind of confession of, of Christ. It's where Jesus asked the disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And they name off a bunch of prophets, and you know, they think a lot of people, are, there's a lot of rumors that Jesus is one of the prophets reincarnated. And Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And only, only in Matthew's gospel, only Matthew records what Jesus says after that. Matthew, uh, Jesus looks into the eyes of Peter and he said, that's right, Peter. And what you have said on this truth will be the cornerstone that I will build my church. And Matthew is the only gospel writer that ever uses this term church. On you, this term church doesn't mean a building. The Greek word for it is ekklesia. On you, on this thing, I will build this confession of faith. This truth that I am the son of the living God. I will build my ecclesia, my people, the body of Christ, this assembly, this gathering that I'm building. And in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus doubles down on this. In fact, Jesus predicts that the temple in Jerusalem, which had been the center of religious life for thousands of years, will be destroyed. And turns out he was right. In 70 A.D. it was destroyed. Because after all, God didn't need the temple. God doesn't live in buildings, does he? He inhabits his people. The message here from Jesus is really clear. God's people is where you find God. God's people. You want to find God? You find God and God's people. The sheep welcomed God's people. They embraced the message of the church. Of course, there's a flip side of it. Right? There's the other part of the story. The other half, he says this. And remember those words that we we were memorizing or we jotted down? Then he will say to those on his left, what did he say in the first one? Come. This one, he says, depart from me. You who are, what did he say in the first one? Blessed, you're cursed. Into eternal fire, remember it was kingdom. Prepared for you, not by the Father prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a whole contrast of of what he's doing here. And you can probably guess how it's going to go, right? The next few verses, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And... They answer the same way that the first group does. That the sheep do. The goats answer the same way. They say, "They Lord, when we'd never do that. If you were hungry, we'd feed you. If if we needed we'd never reject you." Is what they're saying. "We'd never reject you." When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you?" They ask the same question, "When?" When did we ever do that? We would accept you, we would receive you, we would welcome you. And then Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. If you reject my people, if you reject my disciples, if you reject my church... The message is loud and clear. The least of these brethren of mine, and you reject me, how we treat the least in the Lord is exactly how we treat the Lord. How we treat the least in the Lord is how we treat the Lord because I inhabit a people. I don't dwell in a building. That's how this movement will stand the test of time because kingdoms and governments crumble and buildings fall. But this movement won't because God's people is where you find God. God's people is where you find God. Reject my people, Jesus says, and you reject me. Everyone is accountable. Everyone is accountable for how they receive the message that I have entrusted to my people. And everyone is separated. This is one of those verses I wish wasn't in the Bible, right? Wish I hadn't read that? Because Jesus closes it out. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous, the sheep, to eternal life. Jesus says we all end up in one of two places depending on our reception toward the message carried by God's people. I told you it's tough. I've long struggled with this passage. And it's so Matthew that it had to be a part of this series. Because it's only found in Matthew. It's a long story. it's, it's It's so Matthew I've struggled with this passage because I've I've always thought like did did this mean when I first when you first read it you just go did this mean that faith in Christ is not what determines eternal destination You ever read that and you read it first Is that what this means? Does this mean that good works toward the prisoners, toward the hungry, toward the poor, are what become the dividing line between heaven and hell? And it makes me wonder, like, have I fed enough? Have I served enough? Have I helped enough? Have I clothed enough? I mean, Lord, do I need to go to the soup kitchen tomorrow? Am I doing enough? And that's not what the passage is about at all. The point of the parable is the acceptance or rejection of the Christian faith entrusted to a people and all the nations and all the world and every person on planet Earth will be judged on their basis of their acceptance or rejection of the church and her one message Christ crucified Christ risen and Christ will come again that's it that's the message that was uniquely given to the church. The parable is an indictment on the idea that you can find Christ apart from his church or his people, that you can separate God from his ecclesia. And I get it. The church is messy because it is full of messy people. At her best she's beautiful right at her best she has built hospitals she started orphanages at her best she's fed the hungry all across the world at her best she's college students on a Saturday morning filling up boxes to feed the hungry in Birmingham at her best at her best, she covers Central Park in tents to care for the sick and dying from COVID-19. You remember that? When America needed the church, Samaritan's Purse, one of the largest Christian organizations in the world, said, We're, we'll do it. We'll do it. Whew. At her best, she's beautiful. But at her worst, she can be ugly, can't she? At her worst, she hurts people. She lies to people. She turns a blind eye to abuse. She mishandles money and puts it in the pocket of jet-flying preachers. At her worst, she's ugly and I get it because some of you have seen the best of the church some of you have had the church walk alongside you through the hardest times of your life and the church has made you came with a casserole when a loved one died and you never knew that Jesus's love could look like a casserole but it it sure tastes like love and you have had people weep with you And grieve with you over broken hearts and broken relationships, and you have seen the absolute best in the church. You have found community and you have found purpose. But I know some of you have seen the worst of the church, and you have been hurt, and you have been abused, and you have been gossiped about, you've been deceived. And it's easy in this day and age, and it's almost popular now, right? It's almost popular now to say that I can't be a Christian because there's so many, and I, I can't be a part of the church. I can't be a Christian because of the church, because there are so many hypocrites there. And ain't it true? I am chief among them. And I just want you to know if you're skeptical about church, I, good news, you sit in a room full of hypocrites, like, we won't deny it. Like, we're not trying to put on a show, a, a charade, a facade. It Wouldn't it be easier if God just built a building that was perfect and clean, and you could just come to it and worship God? He tried that. He tore it down, and then he built a people. And it is so imperfect, and it is so unclean, and it is so messy. But you can't have Jesus if you don't want his church. How we treat the least in the Lord, the least in the Lord is how we treat the Lord. There are two places you can end up. Two places, Jesus says, in that last verse. Just two places. And the only way, the only vehicle that God gave the message of salvation to was the church. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Like, I don't, no, no, preacher, I don't need the church. I just need God's word. Let me help you out here, okay? God's word, the New Testament part. Was written by the church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and Peter, and James, they are the church. And guess who they gave their documents to to preserve after they died? Just guess who they gave it to. They gave it to their church, and the church is the reason that the documents were preserved for thousands of years. The church is the reason that we have 25,000 original texts of the New Testament, original manuscripts. The church. So people say this, I just can't be a Christian because of the church. Listen, you can't be a Christian without the church. Because the only way you even know what a Christian is, is the church wrote about it. And they lived it. How we treat the least in the Lord is how we treat the Lord. And I want you on the right side of eternity. And maybe you've been hurt by the church. And I just I want to be honest with you. This church has got some warts because we got people. In every area, every one of our staff positions is filled by a people. We all got warts. I'll tell you something. You can find Jesus here in this people. Now, can I be real honest? I think that this is a message to the church, about the church. It's not just a message to the world about the church. I think it's a message to the church about the church. Because it can be real easy to get judgmental, for Christians to get judgmental about others in the church. Have you ever noticed this? We judge others who, we judge other churches that worship differently than us that are smaller than us or bigger than us or in a different denomination. We judge Christians who practice their faith a little differently than us or sin differently than us. And oh man, we love to judge a celebrity pastor who falls. We might even make a documentary about it. And I'm not saying we don't need to hold leaders accountable and call out sin and the abuse of power. Leaders are called to a different standard. But I fear that sometimes we feel a little too good about it. And I I just, I'm reminded as I read this passage, I'm reminded as I read this passage, that I can begin to feel a little self-righteous about churches who do it a little differently than us about Christians who are a little less mature than me and about a celebrity pastor that ends up behind bars. And I think this passage is warning us that that kind of self-righteousness is dangerous territory. Because sometimes people need to be behind bars. But Jesus's challenge to me is so what are you willing to go visit them because how you treat the least of these brothers and sisters of mine even the ones that really mess up well that's how you treat the lord because god is in his people And the witness of the church listen Christians the witness of the church to the world sure would be different if we would just treat each other the way that we say we would treat Jesus. Heavenly Father it's a tough message because we don't like to think about stuff like this we don't like to think about eternity. We don't like to think about our own self-righteousness. We don't like to think about judgment. And yet we're reminded, Lord, of this beautiful messy thing you've created of your brothers and sisters, the church. And we would pray, God, Lord, that we would just have a heart for it. That we would realize that however we treat the least of your brothers and sisters, That's how we treat you. And Lord, I know how we say we would treat you if you were standing in front of us. So help us hear the message. That when we see the least of these in front of us, you are standing in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with an old song, um, old worship song, probably 15 years old, called Hosanna, great Sunday to sing it, Palm Sunday. And the reason it's so important, it was important for me that, for, that we close with this song because, on, because it so reminds me of this passage and this ending of Jesus' story going into Jerusalem where we sing Hosanna and we praise it, but the bridge of this chorus says, Uh, it says it's just a beautiful it's a beautiful chorus it says heal my heart and make it clean open up my eyes to the things unseen help me to love like you have loved me and then listen to this my favorite part break my heart for what breaks yours break my heart for what breaks yours Would you ask that? Would that be your prayer? Would it be your prayer to say, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours? The least of these, help me to love like you have loved me. Help me to treat the least of these the way I would treat you. So I want you to stand. And if we're gonna sing Hosanna to the King, then let us make sure that we love the people